0: It's time for another edition of the Hypocritical Podcast. Joining me this week is Chief Marketing Officer Rick Kuahara. Hey
1: Elena, great to be back again.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. And now we've got a stacked show with lots of relevant and important information. And so the first thing we're going to talk about is, of course, what everybody's got on their minds, COVID-19. And so what can you share with us regarding what's in the news regarding the coronavirus?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, lots of stuff going on. But to start off on a little bit of, I guess, a silver lining, Mm -hmm. there was an article written by... Paddy Padmanaban, who I actually got a chance to interview with, and you guys will be able to listen to a excerpt from that interview uh, later in the podcast. But he wrote a great article on CIO.com, um, which was around the story that's playing out where there's a lot of um, technology being adopted on the back end of healthcare organizations because of the coronavirus. So, like a lot of people know, you know. The front line of healthcare workers have been really swamped with the outbreak, and um, along with social distancing and people staying at home, there's just a lot of confusion of when should I go see a doctor, um, when should I not? How can healthcare systems, you know, adapt to this and help people while still, you know, controlling, you know, crowds and who's getting into the hospital and what's called triaging a lot, right? Just identifying, okay, what's wrong with this patient? Do they need to come in? Do they not? How severe is it? Um, So a lot of health systems are adopting technology to help them with this kind of new normal, right? Um, So one of the things is like technology, which is they're calling self triaging tools to help consumers check for symptoms on their own before um, being asked to go see a doctor or get put through to talk to a doctor on, you know, on the phone or online um, Providence health in Washington state, which was pretty much like ground zero for the pandemic in the U S um, they have a, their chat bot actually now have FAQs with um, assessments related to COVID-19 systems um, Providence digital innovations group Which helps kind of organize things. Say that they saw seventy thousand patient logins and over one million messages come through that chatbot in the first month of the outbreak, Uh, which is is about ten to fifteen times. Yeah, so about ten to fifteen times more than normal.
0: And you know what's really great about that is it's giving people resources, and you know that's what they need because a lot of people. You know, they feel a little under the weather, and then they think, "Oh, I need to go to the doctor and get tested." But more than ever, it's important to stay home and not spread whatever it is that you have.
1: Right, and not overrun the hospitals, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't want people to freak out and, at the slightest sign, go in when they don't have to. Um, and you know, it's going to be take longer for people to get on the phone with a doctor or a nurse. So, having these ways for people to self diagnose um, is really helpful. And the other thing is telehealth, um, which is really coming up a lot um, for all healthcare uh, providers. Uh, we're seeing a lot with our customers, especially around like um, mental health therapists, um, <clears throat> those type of consultations, uh, where it's really being extremely helpful. Um, and I think uh, Geisinger Health. Uh, they saw a 500% increase in telehealth visits within the first couple weeks of the outbreak. And just incredible amount of adoption for telehealth where previously, because telehealth has been around for a while, but it never really caught on.
0: What does that Um, mean um, specifically?
1: Telehealth is where people can go online and see a doctor virtually. So you have your webcam set up and there's different programs, um, available that are HIPAA compliant and secure, um, where you can talk to a doctor, see them face to face, uh, over video and not actually have to go walk into the office. Um, and it's been around for a while, uh, but now we're seeing it happen. Of course, people have to use it more. And so we actually might be at a tipping point now where it's going to be adopted a lot more regularly. And we kind of talk about that when I interview Patty um, that you can listen to later on the podcast.
0: Excellent. And I've always appreciated that with my healthcare provider as well, you know, that if there's an opportunity not to go into the hospital and do it virtually, then that is fantastic.
1: In the end, the bottom line is that you want to get People better health outcomes, and you want to make it as easy as possible for them to um, get the help they need.
0: Wonderful. And so, what else can you tell us about how COVID 19 is impacting cybersecurity?
1: Yeah, last week we talked a little bit about it how people are now working more remotely and how that can increase the risk of a cyber attack. And we are now seeing the results of that actually happening. So Europol uh, released a report recently where they show that there is an increasing um, number of attacks of people going after that remote workforce, uh, specifically with phishing DNS hijacking attacks. So a phishing attack everybody knows is where you kind of send an email uh, that's fraudulent. You want the hackers want someone to click on it and then they can then take data from your computer or access your email and use that as a way in to compromise the organization. But DNS hijacking is a little bit different. That's where uh, they actually hack the router that you're using at home. And they can then change the DNS settings on the router. So you can kind of think of it like um, whenever you type uh, a name in um, the name of a website, on your browser, the DNS service is what uh, connects the um, IP address, so where that, where that uh, website is located with what you're typing in, the domain name. And what hackers are doing is they're kind of hijacking that, so they're redirecting it from the site you think you're going to to their fraudulent site where they can then um, do a, f- a few things. You know, they can actually get malware into your browser, your website. They can have you fill out a form to get your information. Um, it's basically like a way of phishing for a web browser versus doing it via email.
0: That is crazy.
1: Yeah. So, a lot of, so it becomes even more important what we talked about last week doing um, either having, well, one, always making sure that you are not using the default password for the admin on the router, that when you have a router, you're changing it from whatever it was set by the factory, Mm. um, which a lot of people don't do. You need to change that. And then secondly, for a lot of organizations, is making sure that your employees are using a virtual uh, private network, a VPN, which kind of secures the connection to the internet.
0: All right. Wow. That is invaluable information
1: (laughs) yeah and so always be safe and just be aware these attacks are out there and um, uh, just making sure that if something looks a little wrong that it probably is trust Mm -hmm. your instincts there
0: and you're not alone there are hundreds of thousands of people that are being affected
1: Right. I think by March, uh, some research from Atlas VPN saw that there was a 350% increase in phishing websites, um, which is like over half a million registered phishing sites that they found, which means there are probably more others that are out there that they haven't found yet.
0: Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Well, thank you so much for sharing the latest news headlines with us and, um, that is really interesting to share. So we also want to focus on those that are winning and those that are losing. And so what can you tell us about who's winning this week?
1: Well, we're excited to uh, talk a little bit about our customers here uh, because as we talk to more of them, it's really interesting to see how they're kind of um, taking the lead in far, as far as making sure that... Um, throughout this pandemic patients are and their clients and customers are um, still able to deliver the health outcomes that's needed so uh this week i we want to talk about uh radix health and they is that they're actually like a technology company they help doctors manage their case loads and avoid uh any undue risk to themselves or their staff so um starts you know in a normal world they are what they do is they help uh, healthcare care providers optimize every step of a patient's appointment journeys so when the patient they alert the patient hey get them to the right provider actually scheduling the appointments sending them reminders that type of thing but now they are using um they're helping a lot of these medical partners stay open and serve their patients Um, by doing some uh, triaging themselves. So they, for example, one of the things that they're doing is before a scheduled appointment, they'll send a reminder and with it, they'll give the patient, uh, they'll ask the patient, like, are you showing any of these symptoms, Um, which might be coronavirus related. And then they can, with that answer, then they'll know, hey, maybe this person shouldn't come in we Will reschedule them. Um, and just a way to make sure that, again, unless you have to go in, don't go in. Um, and they do, and they're able to kind of send this um, sensitive information, ask for the sensitive information because they're using our um, PowerBox email API to protect it, that and make sure that it's all HIPAA compliant when they are sending these email reminders and notifications.
0: All right. Well, we just highlighted an excellent winner. And uh, that's always a a nice feel good. (laughs) But we also want to showcase, you know, something that we can always learn from someone that is failing.
1: Okay. So Tandem Diabetes is a medical device manufacturer in San Diego, and they found that employee email accounts were compromised during a three-day period after a successful phishing attack. So it looks like actually several employee accounts, email addresses were compromised for three days from January 17th to January 20th. And after they investigated it, they found that, you know, like I said, around 140,000 patients were impacted. And that includes clinical data about diabetes therapy uh, for some of the devices that they, um, they have uh, social security numbers. Okay. And after investigating, um, what was compromised they found that the affected accounts contained a lot of patient data that included things like um, how customers use their products and services uh, clinical data social security numbers as well for a limited number of patients so a lot of sensitive data that was taken as a result of that phishing attack and it looks like they are giving um, free credit monitoring, especially for the people who had their social security numbers uh, impacted, but it continues to show that um, everybody's got to be safe. And again, having that you can't overtrain your employees enough when it comes to these uh, being aware of phishing attacks, because you know that it take, it just takes one wrong click to impact thousands of people.
0: Good reminder. And yeah, I mean, it seems as if you need that training consistently. And so, something that we can all learn from as well. All right, well, moving on, as Rick had mentioned previously, we have a very insightful interview. Uh, Rick Kohar had a chance to chat with Patty Padmanabhan, CEO of Demo Consulting, a digital transformation and growth advisory firm focused on the healthcare sector. Now, Patty is an award winning business leader and author of The Big Unlock. Harnessing data and growing digital health businesses in a value-based care era. They discuss digital transformation in healthcare and how COVID nineteen may change healthcare for the better. Take a listen.
1: We're seeing with the COVID nineteen pandemic that is forcing a lot of providers to telehealth, and you know there was even the recent telehealth expansion uh, notice that went out. Uh, do you see this as kind of a turning point into the adoption of telehealth? And maybe even that opening up providers to being open to adopting other new technologies? Does that make sense? Absolutely.
2: I think uh, telehealth has been coming along nicely for the past few years, but it really wasn't seeing the levels of adoption that one had hoped for. And there were uh, different reasons for it. Uh, the comfort level of physicians to use telehealth platforms to consult with their patients is one of them, and whether they are whether they feel comfortable with it, whether they are trained for it, you know how do you really do a televisit as opposed to an in person visit, et cetera et cetera so that's one part of it uh, the aspect of delivering care through a virtual interface. The other part equally important part is that the reimbursement environment did not uh, treat telehealth visits on par with in-person visits. So the financial motivation was lacking. And I think uh, you alluded to the recent uh, clarification uh, a few days back about uh, telehealth visits being treated on par for reimbursements for Medicare patients anywhere, anytime. So there's actually three components to that announcement. So it's not just uh, synchronous telehealth visits, but it's also virtual check-ins, which could be via phone, for instance, and e-visits, which could be asynchronous, and it's just an email interaction. So all of that is going to get reimbursed. And the important thing is that telehealth uh, visits are going to be reimbursed at the same rate as in-person visits. And that now takes away any financial disincentive uh, uh, You know, at a time when there is already a strong incentive to adopt telehealth. So I think the two are converging in a, in a way that could constitute a tipping point for the future. And I was, uh, you know, I've been, I've been talking to people and I've been following what's going on uh, through media reports and so on. Clearly there's an uptick in telehealth visits. Uh, there's a safety concern, obviously. Uh, but, you know, even for non-COVID related cases, now doctors are more comfortable doing telehealth visits so if it's a routine check-in for some other chronic condition you don't need to come into the office firstly because come into the hospital because firstly they don't want you to come in for whatever reason mm-hmm. and secondly you know you now have the ability to take care of people uh, in their homes for other conditions not related to COVID-19 and uh, you know still get reimbursed right so I think all of this is going to uh, uh, create a, a sort of a tipping point and When we come out of this crisis, I think we're going to see a shift, a definite shift towards telehealth as a default mode of experiencing care, at least for some aspects of care. That's what I believe is going to happen.
1: Great. Thanks. That's great insights there. So you wrote the big unlock in 2017 which isn't that long ago but have you seen more movement in healthcare organizations utilizing data and embracing digital transformation
2: Yeah you know people ask me this question all the time you know when I wrote this book in 2017 I made a set of predictions in the book about what was going to happen in terms of the data the emerging data sources and how data and analytics is going to drive digital transformation. And most of what I was forecasting or predicting have come through. If anything, they've, they've moved ahead even further than where I thought they would be. So today we are, we are in a place where data is essentially driving healthcare decisions. And it's, it's an important enabler for healthcare decisions because now you have the ability to aggregate large amounts of data from multiple sources and do it in a cost-effective way because you have the cloud infrastructure and so on and so forth, which doesn't cost much. If anything, the costs are going down year on year. And so now you have the ability to aggregate all of the data in one place. But more importantly, you now have a lot of advanced analytical tools, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning and so on, that can now detect patterns, make predictions, and uh, give you deeper insights than, than before. So you can now really make informed decisions about caring for your patients. So, you know, the movement has definitely been in the direction that I thought it was going to be. If anything, uh, it's, you know, it's getting even, it's getting even stronger. And as far as digital transformation is concerned, all the experiences that are now being uh, reimagined through digital tools and digital platforms, digital front doors and whatnot, all of that is driven in some way, shape or form by data and analytics at the back end. And so Mm -hmm. to that extent, we are seeing an acceleration uh, now with, you know, we just talked about the telehealth, uh, uh, the shift towards telehealth, which which has been brought on by this crisis. But I think we're going to see a lot of other experiences that are going virtual. And uh, these virtual experiences are going to be driven by data, analytics, and superior interfaces. An example of that is chatbots. So so today you can go online to any health systems portal and you are at least the larger leading health systems, you'll find a tool there that enables you to self-triage your condition before you call in or reach out to a provider. And those triaging tools are constantly learning through AI and machine learning algorithms. And it's all powered by the data. So, you know, we are seeing all of these converging in ways that uh, I did not fully anticipate in 2017, but I could see it coming. If anything, it's happening faster now.
1: That's great. Um, And, you know, that kind of goes to another question that we had um, about a few of the articles that you've written you know, bringing up the point of data monetization in healthcare, uh, as well as balancing that with patient access and then also securing the data, of course. So you mentioned how things are kind of going a little bit faster than even you predicted. Um, but, you know, with l- recent concerns, I mean, I know on Capitol Hill, there's the Data Privacy Act, there's um, the centers wanting to question the, the Ascension Google um, relationship. Is there a fear of data security possibly slowing down some of these advancements?
2: I don't believe it's a question of slowing down as much as it is about really coming to an agreement on a set of uh, principles around which the data is going to be shared, accessed, uh, analyzed and uh, you know the analysis being made available, and you know mm-hmm. I, my next book is actually coming out. It was supposed to come out in June, but it might get delayed a little bit. My, I, I've written this uh, along with my co-author Ed Marks, who's the former CIO of the Cleveland Clinic, and we address this topic, among others, in the context of digital transformation. We believe that the, the power of data to transform healthcare is something that we're in the very early stages of harnessing. And uh, yes, when, you know, private sector gets involved and big technology firms get involved, especially firms that are dealing with some kind of a reputational deficit, if you will, for things that they have done in other parts of their business, you know, by using consumer data to target consumers in ways that, uh, people didn't like or people didn't approve or appreciate or whatever it is, those concerns somehow translate over into uh, the healthcare arena and and it becomes a little more sensitive simply because healthcare data is very, very personal, very, very sensitive, and people don't want other people looking at it because of the potential for abuse uh, of the insights that come out of the data. But I think if we, all, if we take a step back from all of the rhetoric uh, that's going on about the Google Ascension deals and so on and so forth. Really, I don't think anyone denies the fact that there is a lot of benefit to be gained by analyzing the data, gathering insights, and using those insights to improve healthcare outcomes. I don't think anyone denies it. I think it's the the manner in which these contracts are constructed uh, the access provisions that they have, who gets to see it, and you know what happens to the data, where does it sit, uh, you know who gets the insights, and what do they do with it? Those are questions that need to be dealt with, and I think the public needs to be given more confidence. And I also believe that at a very practical level, we need to get a common set of principles on the you know on the table and have everybody agree to it. It can't be that every single data contract is different and you know you as a patient now that you know the final rules for interoperability are going into effect you could be sharing your data with someone and if they don't tell you how exactly they're going to use it that's not fair to you so I think there's a lot of that that needs to be sorted through and that's why you're I think seeing a lot of this rhetoric uh, in in my view Rick.
1: Those are good points and look forward to the the book coming out that'll be great. Thank you. Um, Speaking of interoperability, you, you wrote a few months ago an article on why interoperability is cool again, and you kind of highlight the tension between, at the time, the proposed interoperability rules, um, the tension between healthcare organizations, tech firms, and the um, EHR vendors.
2: Right.
1: Now that it's you know going forward, what is your prediction on kind of how this will all play out? Um, and when do you think we'll see the impacts of the implementation of the rules
2: so so let me let me start by saying that uh, you know even before the rules went into effect a lot of what people wanted to do through interoperability was already in flight so it wasn't as if people were not able to access access data from electronic health record systems the api economy is well uh, well underway and uh, you can Access, uh, electron, you know, data from electronic health record systems, uh, you know, subject to certain, you know, constraints and you know, governance and uh, so on and so forth. And the uh, the API led strategy for uh, unleashing innovation, unlocking insights, is what I was mostly trying to to refer to in the article about why interoperability is cool again, because. Uh, apis are really going to be powering a lot of the innovation going forward they help you to accelerate innovation and uh, you know experiment uh, in at scale and fail fast and all of the good stuff and really uh, you know unlock the data and and, and more importantly allow uh, you know application development to be practiced by a broader community uh, who don't really have to Know, go into the bowels of the technology to try and pull the data every single time they build an application so that's what i was trying to refer to but the the obviously there was there was uh, this is all in the backdrop of this ongoing tension that uh, that's been going on for a while between big tech firms and digital health innovators who want access to the data sitting inside electronic health systems and the uh, uh, the cms and the hhs who have been promoting it and who've been trying to get the EHR vendors on board and the EHR vendors for their part, at least one of them, one of the big ones uh, saying that, Hey, look, you know, let's just uh, hit the pause button here because do we really know what we're doing? We're going to uh, you know, provide unrestricted access to patient data to the patients. Can they be trusted with the data, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, I wrote a further piece after this uh, as well where I talked about, you know, wh- Hey, you, what are the questions here? Well, the questions are, can patients be trusted with the data? Can technology firms be trusted with the data? And so on and so forth. Well, all those questions, I think, have to be taken up one at a time. And you're not going to have a hundred percent smooth transition from where we are today to where we're going to be when patients actually get unrestricted access and can, with the touch of a button, just share it with anybody they like. Well, patients will find out too, you know, what happens to their data. I hope there isn't a lot of serious unintended consequences. There is some merit to to being able to educate patients and make them aware that hey, you have to be careful now that you have this access to the data. Well, the other things that the, the, the final rule talks about, you know, information blocking practices and penalties for blocking, you know, those I think uh, are are separate from what I was talking about in the article, which was about why interoperability is cool again. I think, uh, if anything, now with, uh, with the access getting loosened up, uh, you know, if you're in the integration API kind of a space, I think there's a lot of, a lot of good things ahead for you. That's what I think.
1: It will be very interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, Patty, thanks so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate all the insights you've shared, and thanks uh, for
2: taking time out to be on the podcast. You're most welcome, Rick. It was a pleasure talking to you. Take okay. care.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Rick, for that insightful interview. And it's always so great to hear what the experts have to say.
1: Yeah. And Patty was uh, great to talk to A lot of great insights. And of course, you know, people can check out the transcript of the full interview on our website.
0: All right. Well, that brings this episode of the Hypocritical Podcast to a close. If you like what you heard, feel free to subscribe and also share. Rick, thank you so much for joining me this week.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Always fun.
0: Thank you, and until next time, visit palbox.com.